Ephesian letter, chapter 2. I think this was the passage we read last week. I spoke upon the need of a practical faith. From verse 1. You did he make alive when ye were dead through your trespasses and sins, wherein ye once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now worketh in the sons of disobedience among whom we also all once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires um, of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace have ye been saved, and raised us up with him, and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have ye been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that no man should glory, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. We just bow together in a further word of prayer. Father, as we here bow in thy presence, we thank thee that thou hast not left us to our own devices or to our natural energies or resources, but thou hast granted to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And, O oh, Father, we thank thee that as we have been praising thee that thou art a, a, alive from the dead, and that thou hast been made our risen head, the Holy Spirit can make that glorious fact a reality to every one of us. Mm. And we, Lord, pray together that the Spirit of the Lord shall himself bear witness to the truth that is proclaimed this night. We remind thee of that word, that that word which goes forth out of thy mouth shall not return unto thee void, but shall accomplish that to which thou hast sent it. We praise thee and we worship thee, and we give ourselves to thee in faith and trust now, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I have been speaking on Thursday evening and this morning about this matter of reigning with Christ. And it seems to me that this evening there is just one more element that would be most suitable to take in an evening time such as this. And it is that those who are really going to reign with Christ have got to know in experience the risen power of Christ's life. In other words, it, seem, it, it is as if God is saying to those, every child of God, who would really move on with the Lord, that it's not only a matter of a living faith. And we spoke about this morning the life of Abraham. And we spoke about the need of a faith, a living faith. Um, of course, it is not just the possession of a faith. It's not just the recognition of the need to have faith nor just the possession of a living faith. It is the exercise of a living faith that is the key to it. 
by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out. He did something. He exercised the faith that God had given him. And everyone who would know something of reigning with Christ must know a living faith. Of course, the interesting thing, we can't go into it this evening, I'm only just going to take up this matter of life in Christ. Um, and uh, its need and its fullness and power and the joy of it. But I want just to say to those of you who've been following these other times that you see, when the majority of believers do not enter in to all that God has so dearly won for them to the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the majority of Christians do not possess their possessions, do not fulfill the will of God, do not come, as it were, to that place where the um, purpose of God is realized and um, uh, fulfilled on earth in practical situations, then God takes up those who are prepared to go on in front, like an advance party. He takes up those uh, that really are prepared to pay the price, prepared for the working of the Spirit of God in their lives, and he will take them on like pioneers, not a kind of elite inner circle, but those by whom he fulfills his purpose and works his work and then brings all the others into the blessing of it. Now that's what the Bible calls an overcomer. There is a lot in the Bible about overcoming Whatsoever we read this morning, 1 John chapter 5, whatsoever is begotten of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, I said this morning that God has illustrated um, some of these principles of reigning with Christ in different lives. And the first one we looked at this morning was Abraham. And the one I just want to underline this evening is Isaac. Isaac is a remarkable character in one way, and yet he, he pales into insignificance between two vivid, almost flamboyant characters. You have Abraham and you have Jacob, and poor Isaac comes in between. And both Abraham and Jacob overshadow uh, Isaac, uh, dear Isaac, never did anything original in his life. Isn't it amazing? He never did a thing that was original in his whole life, poor man. <clears throat> it, the one thing he did was dig wells. And, and the wells he, he dug were all the wells that his father Abraham had dug before him. Um, it, it is quite interesting. All the way through the record, you find Abraham just... just He's a kind of in-between, like a valley connecting two huge mountain ranges. Abraham on one side, Jacob on the other, but here is this lovely, open, sunlit, fertile valley that's Isaac that connects the two. And the point is this, <clears throat> that you cannot have a Jacob without an Isaac. <laughs> Isaac is the link between Abraham and Jacob who became the father of the house of Israel. And that, I think, is a very important thing to learn. And the one great thing we learn about Isaac, symbolically in the Bible, is that he had something to do with wells. <laughs> if you look 
in Genesis, and I'll just prove this point to you, lest you think it's fanciful. In Genesis and chapter 18, I'm not giving you all the verses, but here are just a few, just sorry, Genesis 26, verse 18, and he digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Uh, Verse 19, and Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water, and the herdsmen of Gerar strove with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours, and he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. And they digged another well, and they strove for that also, and he called the name of it Sitna. And he removed from thence and digged another well, and for that they strove not and he called the name of it Rehovot. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. It's all wells. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? It's all wells, the whole thing. Even you go over the page, uh, verse, no, verse 25, and he built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord, pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. <laughs> Over the page, verse 32, And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they digged and said unto him, We found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is called Beersheba unto this day. It's all wells, wells of water. Now, of course, in the Bible, water is a symbol of life. Because in desert conditions, water it makes all the difference between life and death between barrenness and fruitfulness, between fertility and just an arid desert, a wilderness. And it's water, sweet water, that makes all the difference. And you know, Jesus spoke a lot about wells. And when we come to it, we, 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 we make a, a tremendous discovery here that the Christian life is not all to do with doctrines, not all to do with technique, not all to do with methods, not to do with some institutional, traditional movement, but the Christian life is, is all to do with being made alive together with Christ. That is the characteristic of the child of God. Now the overcomer, all the overcomers, all these that God takes up to bless the West, all they have really in them are the Uh, qualities and characteristics that every Christian ought to have. But many don't have through unbelief or through sin or through backsliding. So God takes certain ones and he, he, he sees to it that they are a testimony, they are a witness. They not only have a living faith which they, they exercise, um, but they are also um, made alive together with Christ. You look in John chapter um, 4, the Gospel of John, and chapter 4, and uh, verse um, 14, and it says this, Jesus, I'll read verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, Everyone that drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Oh, it's such a sad thing when Christians become morbid, dark, heavy people. Because the characteristic of the child of God is eternal life. 
resurrection life, abundant life. Life more abundant. It is this marvelous word of the Lord. It shall become in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. You know, it's one thing to have to run off every time, go to this meeting and get a little drink. Go off to that conference and get a little drink. Go off to this speaker and get a little drink. But it's another thing to have the well inside. Now, when you've got the well inside, that makes all the difference in the world. Because you have something which springs up. And it is not just an automatic uh, um, supply in the sense that it's always the same level. It springs up. There are times when the water doesn't spring up quite the same in you. But there are times when uh, it's quieter and there are other times when it springs up. But it's inside of you. Think of that. It's inside of you. The life is right inside. The Spirit of God has brought the source of eternal life into your being, into your house of clay, into this funny little old vessel that we've all got. We've all brought them with us uh, this evening. There they are all sitting in the chairs. But inside these bodies that we have with us, in their various states um, and conditions, we have, if we are children of God, we've got the, the heart of the matter brought into us. Made alive together with Christ. To see some Christians, you wouldn't believe it. They are so miserable, so dark, so heavy. Somehow or other you would think that everything in the world is against them. And they say so. Oh, they say it's hard being a Christian. It's a difficult thing to become a Christian, especially today when it's not popular. People sneer at you. They laugh at you. The whole current of the world is against you. You've got obstacles no one has um, no one else has to face. You have an antagonism that no one else has. Of course you have. The only time you didn't really have it was in the Victorian era. All through church history, really, there's been this. And at the very beginning, it was a good deal more. Think of those early Christians fed to the lions. That's some obstacle. You think that it was easy to become a child of God at the very beginning when the whole world, you think that everything was with them? Not at all. Everything was against them. But they went to their death with laughter in their mouths. They went to their death again and again and again with joy and absolute faith in God. You read in the library a little book which we won't allow out of the library um, called The Mirror of Sufferers in which the last words of some of those who died under that evil woman, bloody Queen Mary, their last words burnt at the stake. Hundreds of them. But you know there were times when we, we I remember some years ago and after times we read some of those stories all in their old English. Their words actually taken down at the time by eyewitnesses. It was an incredible thing. We couldn't believe that people could go to their death with such joy, almost to make a joke of it. Because they'd seen the Lord. They'd been made alive together with Christ. And that is the characteristic of the Christian life. Only a dead fish floats with the current. Once you are an, an alive fish, you can use the current. You use it to go upstream. You use it to, to, to face incredible torrents and rapids, and strong, strong currents. You use it. You're built. Your, your, your life, 
Your life is so constituted that you can take the very thing, the very current flowing against you and use it to go up. And that's exactly what happens to the child of God. Once he or she discovers the fullness of Christ's life, once he or she discovers the power of eternal life, the power of his resurrection, they have a key which means that the very afflictions and problems, the antagonisms, the obstacles, every one of them is used to advance that person in the Lord. Instead of destroying them, it perfects them. Instead of bringing them underneath, it brings them out on top. Instead of making them miserable and empty and unhappy, they come out reigning with Christ. Because it is through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom. So, dear child of God, of course you can say, Oh, dear, 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 it's so difficult being a Christian. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But why don't you put the emphasis on the other foot? What about the fact that you've been made alive together with Christ? The world hasn't got that. The world hasn't got it. Look at it. What a miserable world it is. My word. I thought I'd make a list of some of the things we heard this week. This person shot in the stomach. This person machine gunned down. A bomb in Lisbon. A bomb in Paris. A bomb in Belfast. A bomb somewhere else. Oh, it's a most miserable world to live in. We never hear about any joyful, happy things anymore. It's just one long list of misery. But the child of God has got something that this world, the worldling, hasn't got. They've been made alive together with Christ. When Christ was raised, they have been brought into the very power of his resurrection. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He says that he prays for the Ephesian Christians that God may give to them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. What about? He says two or three things, but the third thing is this that they might know what is his, uh, the exceeding greatness of his power to us what who believe according to that working of the strength of his might which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit far above all principality and power and every name that is named. And then he says, and you, did he make alive together with Christ and raised up together with Christ and made to sit together with Christ in heavenly places. Therefore, if anyone is to know anything about overcoming, if anyone is to know anything about the fulfillment of the purpose of God, you must know the life of Christ if, you don't, if you're not a Christian. If you've never, ever tasted of the salvation of God, that's where you must begin, by receiving Christ as the life of God. And when he steps into your life, you can sing, Christ liveth in me. Oh, what a salvation is this, that Christ liveth in me. Then you can have all the obstacles this world can think of. You can have all the antagonism this world can think of. You can have all the strong current flowing against you. You have a life inside of you that will not rest until it's got you home. You've got a life inside of you that is constituted for problem. Think of it. You didn't realize that, did you? You see, we think of ourselves, we rush to our own wisdom, our own strength, our own resources, our own grit, our own courage, and in the end it breaks down. But we fail as believers to recognize that we have been constituted for catacomb life. 
We've been constituted for persecution. We've been constituted to stand against the flow of things in this world, unpopularity and all the other things that come with the inexplicable. We have a life this world has not got. You think it was easy for the Lord Jesus Christ when he endured the gainsaying of sinners and the contradiction of sinners? You think that it was easy for him to bear the malice and hatred of the establishment in the nation? All their plotting and their cunning and their cleverness and their insinuations and all the rest of it? Of course not. But you see, Jesus himself stood against the current of this world and fulfilled the purpose of God. And once we allow the overcomer, the overcomer, to get into us, we start to know what it is to gain the victory. Now, I find this a tremendous, a tremendous matter. I once asked an old brother years ago who knew very much about this thing, what do you call victory? Because, you know, sometimes we hear this term victory and victory and victory and we tend to think victory is when you, where there's not a breath of, uh, of sort of trouble anywhere, where everything is wonderful and marvelous and where we're smiling and triumphant and full of praise and so on. And he said victory and he thought for a few moments and he said to me, victory is to be still on course at the end of your life. What a wonderful way to put it. Victory is to be still on course at the end of it. It doesn't mean that you haven't been knocked down, that you didn't flag, that there weren't times when you nearly got out of the race, that you didn't stumble, but it, what it victory is, overcoming, what it really is, is that by the grace of God and by the life of Christ inside of you, by the spirit of, of Christ within, you come right through an end on course. Made alive together with Christ. You know, if I had in my hand, we sung in that hymn, as in the cone, the seed. Now, many of you have been in mountain areas and you've seen the pines or the fir trees in those mountain areas. If I had in my hand the seed of a pine tree or the seed of a fir tree, I'm not talking about the cone. If I had the cone, you could see it. But if I had the seed that is in the cone, one of them in my hand, you would think, look at that little black thing there in the palm of his hand. You would probably be able to see it. The first rose would anyway. And you would think, look at that. There doesn't look much life in there. My, a shriveled up, dried up, insignificant, weak little bit of, bit of chaff. Chaff. But look here. You take that little piece of chaff and drop it into a huge boulder, into the crack or a fissure, in a huge boulder, many, many tons in weight. And if some damp gets down there under the right conditions, that little bit of chaff germinates. And what happens? Why, if you could see it, you'd laugh your head off. Two little white threads would go down, and then another little white thread would go down, the weakest, stupidest, silliest little things in the whole world, and then two little green shoots would come out the top, and you would think, if, it could, if you could talk to it, you would say, you silly little thing, do you really think that you're going to overcome this boulder? Do you think that you're going to become a fir tree, a pine tree? You don't even look like a pine tree. If you've seen a little pine seedling at the beginning, it doesn't look the least bit like a pine tree, does it? 
And how many of you have seen one? <laughs> Doesn't look the least bit like it. You'd say to me, oh, you're kidding yourself. You're just a case of delusion. You've been hallucinated. You think that somehow or other you're going to grow and live. But listen, as those little roots go down into the fissure of the rock, and somehow or other get the nutrition that they need, and as that little stem goes up, slowly it becomes a sapling, and in the end it becomes a tree, and it grows up into the, into the sunlight, into, this, into the heavens, and what happens? It splits the boulder. Now, if, I, if you had said to me, what are the odds against that little sapling living, that little piece of chaff ever germinating? The odds must be colossal against it. How can a little piece of chaff do anything against a boulder tons in weight? Why, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Think, it's ridiculous. Supposing that the little bit of chaff says later when it's grown into a great tree and the boulder lies shattered, and there are many examples of this in mountain areas, there the boulder, a huge boulder lies shattered, and in the midst of it, a magnificent tree. Now, where did it all begin? Of course, some people say, well, of course, if the tree got dropped out of heaven like that, I, I can see there could be just a possibility that lightning might have struck the rock in a miracle and the thing shattered and then this magnificent tree just disappeared. But it didn't. That's the miracle of it. The miracle is this, that little bit of dried up brown chaff that was a seed out of a cone had life in it. And once it learned to obey the law of its life, that's all it needed. It didn't need some great mechanical bulldozer or stone crusher. It didn't have to get something else to come in and say, crush this stone for me. I can't live without your help. Crush it. No, all it had to do was obey the life that was in it. But you would have thought, that's ridiculous. How can a little seed that size? overcome a boulder nearly half the size of this room. That's impossible. But if it obeys the law of its life, it happens. And that's the wonderful thing about being a child of God. Some people come to me and they say, oh dear, you don't know me. So yeah, it's wonderful to hear you preaching. Um, it's, all, it's all a wonderful theory, a marvelous ideal. But for me, it's impossible. You don't know my family background. Oh, I've got the most impossible family you've ever seen. Now, I have lived long enough to find that there are an incredible number of these impossible families. <laughs> Indeed, it seems that nearly everybody has got some impossible relative. Somewhere or other, there is an impossible background. And they say, you know, it's, it's impossible. I mean, I'd love to become a Christian. I would love to know the fullness of Christ's life. But it's impossible for me. You don't understand. I have problems. I have inherited weaknesses. I have inherited family problems, flaws in my temperament, traits on my personality. And I, I'm just, I don't know what to do about it. I really don't know what to do. My dear friend, listen. If God has put within you the Lord Jesus Christ, he is sufficient for your family weaknesses. I don't care what they are. If you will only learn to obey the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you will grow out of all your problems. The problem, the, 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 the uh, problem is... <laughs> the problem is this that we all do not put the emphasis upon the law 
of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, we put it on ourselves. Other people come to me and they say that they have other great problems and difficulties. Things have gone wrong in their lives. Things, circumstances have now come into their lives which are irrevocable, which cannot be changed. They say it's like a great boulder that shuts out the sunlight of heaven. It's like something sitting on top of me. It's no good. It's no good. It's not for me. Oh, yes, it is. You wait. It is the only answer to your problem. No doctor can answer it. No psychiatrist can answer it. No social reformer can answer it. No one can answer it. Not even religion can answer it. No, listen to me. Not even religion can answer it. The only answer to your problem is the life of Christ. You let the living Christ into your life and you will find that once you obey him and you follow him and you do what he wants and you experience his life more and more, you grow in him, then almost unknowingly the boulder begins to be split as you grow. It is amazing. And there'll come a day when that boulder will lie shattered all around you and you will be a stately tree in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the Lord. Think of that. It is a wonderful thing what God can do. Life. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again tonight. There are times when I sit in a jumbo jet and being someone who has no experience of that side of thing, of that side of matters, I wonder how on earth that thing will ever get off the ground. 400 people. <clears throat> the last time I was in a jumbo jet, there wasn't a single spare seat. Think of it. Every single seat filled, and some of them were large people. <laughs> and then all the food for two meals for a transatlantic flight. And then all the luggage. I thought if everyone's got enough as I've got. <laughs> Think of the weight. And when you look out at that window, as high as my bedroom window, by the way, and I sit up and look out of the window and look back, I see an engine in which I could stand up inside. And that's only one of four engines. And then I think to myself, how does this thing going to get off the ground? 400 people, all the cabin crew, the pilots, all the meals, all the luggage, and all of us. You mean it's going to get off the ground? And I think to myself, in my sweet, simple little way, why, if I went out there on the runway and ran as fast as I could and flapped my wings, I wouldn't get off the ground. <laughs> because there's such a thing as the law of gravity. I could run as fast as the, as the fastest sprinter, but still I wouldn't get up into the air. Even if I had some kind of wings attached to my arms, I would only just perhaps go up and down. I, the law of gravity would be too much for me. So then I think to myself, how is this thing going to get off the ground? And then I think, I know some people, some of my dear friends, who drive like Jehu, furiously. <laughs> But even if they were to get their car on the runway and go as fast as they could, they wouldn't leave the ground. Maybe they leave the ground for a moment, but down again. They would never get up. And then I think, how does this thing get off the ground? The law of gravity, that's about the one law I know. <laughs> well, that's true, isn't it, you see? I mean, it's a good illustration. Because, you see, most of us know only one law morally, the law of sin and death. We don't know any other law. 
That's the only law we know. We know that like a bowl, in a game of bowls, there is a bias inside the bowl which makes it go crooked. We know we have a tendency to eat. The things we would, we do not. And the things we would not, those things we do. We all know it. We know the law of sin and death is as strong as the law of gravity. We know that we can run for hours spiritually and try to flap our hands, but we can't get rid of the law of gravity. The law of sin and death pulls us down. So someone says, I know what I'll do. I'll read the Bible. I'll read the Bible for five days on end. Let them. They're exhausted at the end of it. They've got enough, quite a lot of biblical knowledge, but then comes a temptation and they're down. So they say, ah, I'll spend a day in prayer and fasting. So they spend a whole day in prayer and fasting. Oh, food for the whole day, think of that. And at the end of it, they feel wonderful. Go to bed, get up the next morning and find a temptation. They're down. The law of sin and death. So then they say, I know what it is. I need to know more fellowship. So they rush along and they get as much fellowship as they possibly can in two months. And then temptation. And they're down. The law of sin and death is too much for us. It's like the law of gravity. We can't get rid of it. And so some of us try to suppress it. Now to me, suppressing the law of sin and death is rather like... Uh, I thought of a very funny illustration and I must suppress it. <laughs> Well, perhaps I will tell you. <laughs> well, first of all, I'll tell you the other one. I mean, to me, it's like, it's like a lilo. When you push it down here, it comes up there. You see, you can't get rid of it. If you push it down here, it, the, the air can't get out. It'll only go one other place. It comes up somewhere else. So you push it down there, and it's up here. Then you push it down there, it's up there. And that's what some people try to do with the law of sin and death in their lives. They spend the whole time till they're absolutely miserable. No wonder Christians are down and miserable and depressed and empty and sort of look all heavy and say everything is so difficult being a Christian. It's full of suffering. <laughs> well, the illustration I thought was one of our dear American ladies who are here today and I heard her speaking in her home to a group and I laughed so much that I had to almost get out of the room because she just said, you know, she said, it's just like, she said, talking about the law of sin and death, she said, it's just like baptizing a cat. <laughs> and I, I said, do Southern Baptists baptize cats? <laughs> if you could hear it in a wonderful Southern drawl, just like baptizing cats. <laughs> And so I was all interested. I laughed so much. She said, that is quite true. She said, what happened was there was a famous preacher in the, their parts around Alabama where anything appears to happen. And um, she said that on this occasion, he caught his son baptizing the black cat. He was a Southern Baptist pastor. And he saw the boy putting the cat down and trying to baptize it in the name of the Lord. And as he put it down, its tail came up. So he pushed the tail down. The head came up. So he pushed the head down. The tail came up. And he was going... And the father could see that the cat was going to get drowned. So he went as fast as he could. And as he called out the son's name, he heard the boy say, All right, then stay a darned old Methodist. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Well, I shouldn't have told you that story, and I'm afraid I've done it. But you know, some people's fight with the law of sin and death is like baptizing a cat. They push down one end and the head comes up. They push the head down, the tail comes up. Then they push the tail down and the head comes up. It's a terrible job. No wonder there's no life at all. But listen, when that jumbo jet gets onto the runway and start, his engines start up and the full thrust of the power uh, is there, then it begins to run along and that amazing thing, and really when you're in a jumbo at times you really wonder whenever it's going to leave the ground. But finally, it suddenly starts to go up and up and up and up and up and it's into the heavens. A superior law has taken over from the law of, grav- of gravity. And that's the only way that you and I will ever know deliverance from the law of sin and death. For it says in Romans and chapter 8 and verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a superior law made alive together with Christ, knowing the power of his life inside, knowing something of his care, his faithfulness, his provision, his energy, his resources inside of me. And then I find that I'm freed from the law of sin and death. Oh, how wonderful it all is. Dear Isaac, he is for us the illustration of this lesson. How do you know um, this life? Very simple. Isaac received and passed on. Such a simple lesson. The one lesson in dear Isaac's life, why he's not a flamboyant personality, why he's not one of those vivid characters, is that he, God, was through him teaching us the one great lesson, that if you and I want to know the life of Christ, we must learn to be a vessel. We must learn to be a receiver. We receive the life. We don't have it in ourselves. We have to receive the Lord. And then we have to know what it is. To grow in that life. That that life may grow more and more and more in us. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. And that they might have life more abundant. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't say, I am come that you might have eternal life when you die. So now you have a miserable existence down here facing all the problems and difficulties and obstacles, but one day when you die, after that you'll get eternal life. He said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have life more abundant. John the Apostle put it like this, He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not the life. I find that wonderful. In another place he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, from within him shall flow out rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. This well springing up unto life eternal is the most wonderful thing because it becomes a river for others. Rivers and rivers of living water for other people. Overcomers. Overcomers. No wonder God said to Abraham when he said, To him, when the season comes round, your wife will bear a son. And Abraham fell on the ground and laughed. 
And God said to him, Abraham, it is so. It shall come to pass, and you shall call your son Isaac, Yitzhak, because it means laughter. And when that boy was born, it says in Genesis and uh, chapter 21 and verse 6, And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh. Every one that heareth will laugh with me. You know, there is a laughter about this life. Oh, yes, Christians are the only people who can afford to really laugh. No wonder it says in Psalm 35, they shall return to Zion with laughter in their mouths. They're the only people who can afford to laugh. How can you laugh when you're on the Broadway to hell? How can you laugh if you're a child of God and living in the world, if you're compromised one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God? How can you laugh? But if you really belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, let the obstacles come, let the difficulties come, let the antagonism come. You've got a laughter. You're a Isaac. You see... What happens to the world is to nothing. But what happens to the Christian is to glory. A tragedy in a worldling's life brings nothing. There's no meaning. But a tragedy in a believer's life brings glory. Because through it, they learn to reign. They learn to rule. Have you ever noticed that wonderful little phrase in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17? It's one of those, it's buried in a theological passage, as it were, that I think most people will miss. But this is what it says. For if by the trespass of the one, that is Adam, death reigned through the one, much more, Shall they that receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, even Jesus Christ? The world knows death reigning over them. Corruption, futility, emptiness. But the child of God, through the work of the Lord Jesus, can know what it is to reign in life through Jesus Christ. Isaac. Are you an Isaac? I don't know where you stand this evening. I don't know whether you're a child of God or not. If you are not a Christian, God can speak to you about this matter tonight about life, about knowing the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't you want to? Why, for me, it is the most wonderful thing in the whole world. That's the thing the Christian has that the Hindu hasn't, or the Buddhist. Or the Muslim, 
or the Confucianists. Ethics, yes. Morality, yes. Decency, yes. Much else, yes. But the one thing the Christian has is this. He or she has been made alive together with Christ. And maybe there are others of you, you're Christians, but you don't know too much about life. Sin is hampering your way with God. Something's holding you back. Something's fettering you. You want to know the fullness of his life, the power of his life. God can meet with you. Shall we bow together in a word of prayer and ask him in his mercy and love to meet every need represented in this room? Dear Lord, thou knowest every single life in this place. Thou knowest those who know thee not, are strangers to thy grace and to thy salvation. Thou knowest those of us who are backsliders, Thou knowest those of us, Lord, who have tasted of thy life, have tasted thy salvation, and yet, Lord, we're compromised. We don't know the power of thy life in our experience. And thou knowest those who've had a real experience of life more abundant and the problems they're facing. Now, Lord, apply thy word to every one of our lives this evening. Wilt thou grant, Lord, that each one of us may in some way take a step forward, some perhaps to Christ to know him, others back from backsliding, others to know the power of his resurrection, and others of us just to go more deeply, waters to swim in. Oh God, do it, we pray this night, for we ask it, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.